Hey, American Hauntings fans, it's Troy. You can listen to all the episodes of our latest season on Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. But I know you're thinking, hey, I've already listened to all the shows from the new season. Well, we appreciate that. But have you listened to our other podcast? We have two full seasons of Dead Men Do Tell Tales on our Patreon page that you probably haven't heard. And the big news is, is that season three will be kicking off on May 9th. Become a supporter and check out that podcast at patreon.com slash American Hauntings because you know you want to hear from us a lot more often. And now, on with the show. Stars filled the sky over Quincy, Illinois, on the cold evening of November 8, 1878. A 16-year-old boy named Charles Ashmore walked out of his family's home and gazed up at the array of light over his head. Perhaps he contemplated the mystery of what was up there in that black sky or who else around the world might be looking at the same view at that same moment. But we'll never know because Charles soon became a mystery himself. An early snow had fallen on Illinois, and Charles went down the two back porch steps and began crossing the carpet of white spread across the yard. He had a bucket in his hand because he'd been sent to fetch water from the spring that was a short distance away. He left behind the bright light that was coming from the back windows of the Ashmore home and disappeared into the darkness. Inside the house, the Ashmore family had just taken their seats at the supper table, waiting for Charles to return with the water. Well, the other children soon grew restless. Charles was taking a very long time. His mother glanced at the clock. The minute hand ticked. Now uneasy, she asked her husband, Christian, to check and see what was taking Charles so long. Christian and his oldest daughter, Martha, put on their coats, picked up a lantern, and went outside to look for Charles. They easily found his footprints in the snow. They made a straight line across the yard. They followed his path, traveling nearly 75 yards toward the spring, and then Martha let out a startled cry. The footprints abruptly ended. Beyond the last one was nothing but smooth, unbroken snow. Charles's footprints simply came to an end. Father and daughter made a wide circle around the tracks, being careful not to disturb them, and went to the spring. The water was covered with a layer of unbroken ice. It was clear that Charles had gotten no closer to the spring than his footprints indicated. Charles had impossibly vanished into thin air. But his story didn't end there. Four days later, Charles's grief-stricken mother went to the spring for water and insisted that she clearly heard the voice of her son calling to her when she passed the spot where his footprints had ended. Well, Charles was nowhere to be seen, but his voice was calling out to her. Well, she cried for her son, walking around the clearing in the woods where his footprints had come to an end. She could still hear his voice. It was coming from one direction, then coming from another. Later, when questioned about the incident, she said the words were very clear and that the voice definitely belonged to her son, but she couldn't understand what he was saying. 
Well, this eerie happening went on for months. Charles's voice was heard every few days by one family member or another, or sometimes by several of them at once. The voice seemed to come from a great distance, and none of them could make out the message or repeat the words. Eventually, the intervals of silence between the incidents grew longer, and the voice grew fainter. By midsummer 1878, it was heard no more. Charles Ashmore was gone for good. Now, just about anyone with an interest in the strange and the unexplained has probably heard this story before. A lot of you are listening to this and thinking that it seems familiar, but yet it's not quite correct. Well, maybe you didn't hear it with the name Charles Ashmore. In the version of the story you heard, it might have been David Lang. And it didn't happen in Illinois. It was in Tennessee or Maybe it was Oliver Larch, and he disappeared on his way to a spring in South Bend, Indiana. Well, all three of these accounts appeared in various books and magazines and on podcasts about unsolved mysteries, the paranormal, and the unexplained. The problem is that none of these three stories are true. The story of Charles Ashmore first appeared in the writings of author and journalist Ambrose Bierce, who not only wrote for newspapers, but wrote several books, dozens of stories about ghosts, vanishings, and the Civil War, and many sarcastic and cutting essays and criticisms in the course of his career. As the original curmudgeon and a man whose nickname was Bitter Bierce, his writing style and journalism background gave his stories a realism that made readers uneasy and many of them mistook his stories as true accounts. Well, that's what happened in the case of Charles Ashmore, along with other such stories he wrote. And over time, his fictional tales have been presented as real disappearances that have no explanation. But it's also possible that events in Bierce's own life helped convince people the events in his stories were true, especially those about unsolved disappearances. You see, Ambrose Bierce, once one of the most famous writers in America, also vanished without a trace. But, well, that's a story for our next episode. This time, we want to introduce you to a young boy named Melvin Horst, a very real boy who simply walked out of the door one day and vanished into thin air. No one heard his voice calling to them from some other place. Melvin was simply gone. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America is a place that is filled with mystery and strangeness. It's a place where tragic events occur and where mysteries exist for which no rational explanation can be found. Those mysteries include unexplained disappearances, just like the ones we've been discussing this season. We've been opening the files on people who have vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. Their stories are often bizarre, unexpected, and sometimes seem impossible. But one thing that we do know is that they did happen and that these people simply walked out the door one day and never returned. Their stories 
have no conclusion. Their cases remain open. Their mysteries unsolved. They're just simply gone. But we don't allow them to be forgotten. This is episode seven of our latest season, a tragic story of an unsolved mystery that left only a pint bottle of whiskey, a frozen orange, and a very strange story behind. Melvin Charles Horst was only four years old when he vanished from the town of Orville, Ohio in 1928. He was the middle child of Raymond Horst who worked at a roofing supply factory in town and his wife, Zora. Melvin had an older brother, Ralph, who was nine and a younger sister, Dora, who was two. Tall for his age at just over three feet tall and stocky at 49 pounds, Melvin was a good looking boy with blue eyes, light brown hair and a big smile. He was a smart boy who rarely got in trouble and was well-liked by all the neighbors who lived around South Vine Street and Paradise Avenue, where the Horst family lived. He wasn't yet old enough for school, so he'd be seen outside playing in the yard, chasing birds, and riding his bike up and down the driveway. He always said hello to the mailman, helped the milkman carry the family's delivery bottles to the porch, and loved watching the father next door when he mowed his grass. The neighbors all knew his face. He was outside as often as he could be. And that's exactly where he was, outside, on the afternoon of December 27th, 1928, the last time he was ever seen alive. After lunch that day, Melvin went outside with a new toy truck that he'd gotten a few days earlier for Christmas. It was about 1 p.m. when he met up with his seven-year-old friend, Bobby Evans. Together, they went looking for another friend, another Bobby, Bobby Ellsworth. But He was sick with a flu that had been going around town and couldn't come out to play with his friends. So Melvin and Bobby Evans wandered around the neighborhood for a while. They played with some other kids and had their attention grabbed by things that were exciting to young boys, like a bonfire that had been built in an empty lot and a passing manure wagon. (laughs) After a while, Melvin decided to stop by home and drop off his new truck. When he left again, he was pulling his red wagon. He waved at his mother when he hurried out the front door. She was in the kitchen then, preparing things for supper, and she waved back. It was the last time she saw Melvin alive. He rejoined Bobby around 4 p.m., and the two boys played together until about 5.30. The winter afternoon was turning into evening, and it was starting to get dark. Melvin told Bobby it was time for him to go home. When Bobby last saw him, Melvin was walking north on McGill Street, headed in the direction of home. He was wearing a brown stocking cap, a brown overcoat, and a checkered sweater. He was last seen in front of the home of a neighborhood man named Elias Arnold. Arnold had come out onto his front porch to pick up the evening paper. He recognized Melvin and waved. Melvin waved back. He walked past the house, and he vanished. When Melvin didn't return home for supper, his mother was irritated at first. She knew her son often got carried away playing and forgot about the time. But the streetlights had turned on. Melvin knew that meant it was time to be inside. Supper was on the table and they'd eat as soon as Raymond got home from work and, of course, after Melvin had washed his hands like his brother and sister had already done. Zora put down a dish towel and stepped outside onto the porch. She called loudly for Melvin, but there was no sign of him. Since that failed to bring the boy home, she sent his older brother, Ralph, to the homes of the boys that Melvin normally played with, but Ralph found he wasn't at any of them. 
When Raymond arrived home from work at 6 p.m., Zora sent him out looking for the missing boy. Supper was forgotten. The food soon turned cold on the table. Raymond searched for two hours on foot and then in his car, but there was still no trace of Melvin. Several people remembered seeing him that afternoon, but didn't know where he'd gone. Finally, Raymond called his brother Roy, Orville's city marshal. The worried uncle set off the town's fire siren, letting everyone in the small town know that something was very wrong. At least 500 Orville residents turned out that night and over the next 48 hours to look for Melvin. In the following weeks, they were joined by thousands of people from all over Ohio who searched hundreds of locations throughout Wayne County and the state. Every empty lot, field, pond, well, thicket, and forest within 100 square miles was painstakingly checked and rechecked. House-to-house searches were carried out in the neighborhood. Searchers went into empty buildings, factories, basements, and abandoned factories. The reward for information about the missing boy reached as high as $16,000, which would be about $280,000 today. Schools all over Wayne County were dismissed so students could assist in the search, but nothing turned up, although bogus tips and wild rumors sent lawmen on wild goose chases throughout Ohio and other states. But somehow, Melvin Horst had vanished without a trace. Like many other rural American counties in the 1920s, Wayne County, Ohio didn't exactly boast an impressive law enforcement staff. Later, history would be pretty critical of the men who investigated Melvin's disappearance. Led by Wayne County Prosecutor Walter J. Maui and Sheriff Albert Jaycott, the investigation soon gained the services of prominent private detectives John Stevens and Ora Slater, who was already famous for his work on the 1926 murder of a crusading newspaper publisher in Canton, Ohio. But the detective's investigation was hampered from the beginning because there seemed to be no motive for a kidnapping, much less any evidence of how or why Melvin had been taken. The initial theory was that his disappearance had been caused by some kind of accident. Investigators suggested he'd fallen down a well or drowned in a pond that no one thought to search, but Investigators soon began to explore other, darker theories when another thorough search of such sites failed to turn up his body after three days. One briefly considered theory was that Melvin had been hit by an automobile and that the panicked driver had either hidden his body or taken it with him. But there was no evidence that such an accident had occurred. They were stumped. And that's when investigators turned to a different theory, revenge. It became what detectives called the only plausible explanation for Melvin's disappearance. They needed to look for someone with a grievance against the Horst family. Today, that likely wouldn't be the first thing we'd think of when a four-year-old disappears. To the cops in the late 1920s, though, it made sense. A boy that young hadn't run away. He hadn't fallen in a well or been in an accident. The Horst family wasn't rich, so it couldn't be a ransom kidnapping. So what else could it be? Well, despite recent stories in the news about children being kidnapped for depraved purposes like Bobby Franks in Chicago and Grace Budd in New York, officers in rural Ohio simply couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that someone could have taken Melvin for any kind of deviant reason. It had to be, they believed, someone who hated the family. 
Melvin's father, Raymond, was a man of modest means and little property. He was quiet, well-liked, with many friends, and seemed to have no enemies who'd want to hurt his son. But the same thing couldn't be said for Roy Horst, Raymond's brother, Melvin's uncle, and the town marshal. The Prohibition era of the 1920s generated crime, corruption, and animosities, even in small towns like Orville. Roy was known for being a vigorous enforcer of the Prohibition laws. He'd raided dozens of local speakeasies, dumped a lot of liquor down storm drains, and put a lot of bootleggers behind bars. Rumor around town claimed that Roy had angered many of the prominent gangsters in Cleveland and Columbus who'd sworn revenge. Detectives Slater and Stevens wondered if maybe Melvin had been kidnapped to get back at Roy Horst. He wasn't the boy's father, but he had lived with his brother's family for years and was especially fond of Melvin. The detectives wondered if gangsters might have mistakenly believed Melvin was Roy's son, which was why he'd been grabbed. Well, the two detectives didn't have to look far to find someone who disliked Roy enough to want to hurt him. He'd only been the town marshal for a year, but he'd arrested a lot of people during those 12 months. But he hadn't arrested anyone as often as he'd locked up Elias Arnold. You might remember him. He was the horsed neighbor who'd been on his porch when Melvin walked by. He was, officially at least, the last person to see the boy on the day he vanished. When Slater and Stevens went through police records, they found that Arnold had spent much of 1928 in the Orville jail on liquor charges, as had several members of his extended family. It was no secret in town that Arnold had a grudge against Roy and had bragged many times that he planned to get even with him. So with all the other theories and leads at dead ends, the authorities directed their attention toward Arnold and his family. Well, their investigation quickly produced results. In addition to his very public threats of revenge, the detectives also discovered two eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen Melvin being kidnapped. It won't come as a surprise when I tell you who the kidnappers were. On January 2nd, 1929, the state's attorney announced the arrest of five suspects in the case. All were being held on a $10,000 bond. Those arrested were, of course, Elias Arnold, his son William, who lived in Akron, his son Arthur, who lived with him in Orville, Arnold's son-in-law, Bascom McHenry, who also lived in Orville, and McHenry's wife and Arnold's daughter, Dorothy. Well, they were an easy bunch to blame for the crime. All were chronically unemployed, were known criminals and bootleggers, and were generally maligned by what was considered the better class of people in town. But They weren't just the so-called usual suspects. There were eyewitnesses to the kidnapping, and to top it off, the main accuser was an Arnold relative. Eight-year-old Charles Hanna, who went by the nickname Junior, was the son of Charles Hanna, the brother-in-law of Elias Arnold. After hearing the evidence accumulated by Slater and Stevens, a Wayne County grand jury indicted the five suspects for child stealing on January 9th. At that point, the newspapers got their first introduction to Junior Hanna. He seemed to be a great eyewitness, and his detailed memory seemed to improve weekly as the March trial for the accused approached. 
According to Junior's story, he'd been playing outside the Arnold house on the day that Melvin disappeared. Just before 5.30 p.m., Elias's son, Arthur, approached Junior and told him that Melvin had just passed by and he wanted Junior to get him and take him to the alley next to the house. Junior caught up to the boy, led him into the adjacent alley, and walked away. He told police that he heard someone say to Melvin, Wait a minute, I want to give you something. Well, at first he told the detectives this was the last time he remembered seeing Melvin, but his memory would soon start to improve a great deal. There was still that other eyewitness too. His name was Tommy Johnson and he was nine. He corroborated Junior's story about being in the alley with Melvin around 5.30 p.m. Well, the grand jury also heard other evidence, although it was mostly circumstantial. On January 7th, the alley where Melvin was taken was searched and a pint whiskey bottle was found. The cops also found an orange, frozen solid in the cold weather that had one bite taken out of it. Well, the police wondered what it meant, but, well, not for long. Junior Hannah suddenly recalled that someone in the house had passed something over the porch railing to Arthur. Junior thought that, you know, maybe it was that orange. The whiskey bottle, which had nothing to do with Melvin's disappearance, merely reinforced the immoral image of the Arnold clan. A.D. Metz, a federal bankruptcy attorney with no experience with criminal cases, agreed to defend the Arnolds. He was joined by a tax attorney, Clarence May, who had also never handled a criminal trial. The two lawyers were in way over their heads. During the trial, all five defendants vigorously protested their innocence and denied knowing anything about Melvin's disappearance. The state's attorney honestly didn't have much of a case. The entire thing depended entirely on Junior Hannah's testimony. Most prosecutors would have been hesitant to build a case around the word of an eight-year-old, but I guess Walter Maui wasn't one of them. But I can promise you, he never made that same mistake again. The trial opened on March 12th. The state's case had been undercut before the first bang of the judge's gavel. The whiskey bottle had become irrelevant by that time, and the orange had become suspect after a reporter announced it had appeared in the alley long after Melvin had vanished. There was also no hard evidence against the Arnolds. All the state had was a short time span between 4 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. on December 27th, for which they had no alibis, and there were also those threats that Elias had made against Roy Horst. Well, the prosecutor likely knew this and exposed the weakness of his case before the trial officially opened by dismissing the indictments against William Arnold and against the McHenrys. This left Elias and Arthur on trial which meant only Junior Hannah's testimony stood between the last two Arnolds and a prison cell. All eyes were on Junior when he took the stand. He answered all the prosecutor's questions in a calm, deliberate manner. Many reporters noted that the boy's recollections of December 27th had gotten a lot better since he'd first been interviewed by detectives. Now, Junior distinctly recalled Arthur Arnold offering an orange to Melvin in the alley and then seizing the boy and dragging him into the house. Then, as Melvin cried for help, Junior ominously saw all the lights in the house go out. Minutes later, as he watched from a hiding place down the street, he saw Arthur carry Melvin out of the house, put him in an automobile, and drive away. 
Well, it was a shocking story and one that upset both the spectators and the members of the jury. Defense attorney Metz cross-examined Junior, but it was a feeble attempt to challenge the boy's testimony. He failed to ask him about the improbable additions to his story, but it's unlikely Junior would have been forced to answer, even if he'd asked him. When Metz asked why he hadn't told what he knew about the kidnapping right away instead of waiting for several days, the boy blurted out, That's my business! And the judge didn't make him answer the question. When Metz confronted him again a short time later, Junior burst into tears and was given time to recover and compose himself while his mother held him in her arms. The main thing Metz accomplished by badgering Junior was making himself and his surly clients even more unlikable to the jury. He also made the mistake of putting Elias Arnold on the stand. Even though Elias admitted he'd been a bootlegger and claimed he'd cleaned up his act and denied that Melvin Horst had ever been in his house, he couldn't help but call Junior Hannah a bald-faced liar. When he criticized the boy, an audible gasp rose from the audience and Metz's heart sank. He knew right then they'd lost. During his closing statement, the prosecutor appealed to the kind of sentimentality toward children that had kept everyone from looking very closely at Junior Hanna's testimony, calling Junior and Tommy Johnson, the other young boy who claimed to see Melvin, messengers of God. He condemned Elias Arnold as a man, quote, burning with hate and with a desire for vengeance, unquote. He had, the prosecutor declared, proved beyond a reasonable doubt that the Arnolds had committed a dastardly crime. Well, thanks to Junior's testimony, the ugly mood in town toward the Arnolds and the lackluster defense put on by the two inexperienced attorneys, the jury agreed with them. They deliberated for seven hours before returning with a guilty verdict on March 16th. The judge sentenced Elias to the Ohio State Penitentiary in Columbus for a term of no less than 20 years. Arthur was sent to the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield for an indefinite stay of his own. The cell doors clanged shut behind them and the people of Orville collectively sighed good riddance. But it wouldn't be long before the entire case against the Arnolds started to unravel. As preparation for the trial and the proceedings themselves dragged on for more than two months, there was one thing that the press and the public seemed to forget about. Melvin Horst. Where was he and what had happened to him? If the Arnolds had taken him, what did they do with him? They claimed to be innocent and yet Melvin was still missing. Well, a new search for the boy began, but no one really knew where to look. The story of the new search didn't get much space in the papers, though, but Melvin's name was still in print because rumors of new evidence in the Arnold case began making the rounds. A.D. Metz filed a motion for a new trial on behalf of his clients based on new information that questioned the credibility of Junior Hanna's testimony. The Court of Appeals approved the motion on June 24th and ordered a new trial. The new evidence was sufficient to convince the court that the jury in the Arnold case shouldn't have given such weight to the testimony of a witness so young. The new evidence had not come from the police, but from a reporter, a guy named Dan Gallagher, who worked for the Cleveland News. In a shocking story he filed on March 29th, he used detailed photos of the alleged kidnapping site next to the Arnold house to prove that Junior had lied on the witness stand. 
From where Junior testified he'd been standing, he couldn't have possibly have seen what he claimed to see in court. Well, the Arnold's second trial in December 1929 was much different from the first. The state's case was again handled by Wayne County Prosecutor Walter Maui, but this time the Arnold's were represented by well-known Cleveland defense attorneys Nathan E. Cook and William F. Marsteller. They aggressively attacked the discrepancies in Junior Hanna's five different kidnapping stories and forced him into admitting that he'd changed his story many times. The boy's credibility deteriorated further when the defense succeeded in having several of his conflicting statements read into the record. Junior's story was in shreds when the case finally went before a jury on December 7th. It took them only a few hours to find both Elias and Arthur Arnold not guilty. Well, the trial ruined Junior's reputation. Reporters from the Cleveland press called him a, quote, little skunk in print, and his subsequent behavior only served to confirm the negative opinions about him. A month after the Arnolds were acquitted, Junior recanted his accusations against them, but then turned around and accused his father, Charles, and a neighbor, Earl Canold, of having been involved in Melvin's death. On February 20th, 1930, Charles Hanna, with some help from the local cops, I'm sure, signed a confession that admitted that he'd helped Earl Connold kidnap Melvin. They'd been paid to do so by out-of-town bootleggers who had a grudge against Roy Horst. When Earl accidentally killed Melvin during the kidnapping, Charles convinced his son to accuse the Arnolds of the crime. Well, in the meantime, Earl blamed everything on Charles. He said the kidnapping had been his idea and that he'd been the one who accidentally killed Melvin. Well, they continued pointing fingers at one another for two months, each man making wilder and more improbable accusations against the other. Finally, by April, the state's attorney had had enough. Fed up and with any case he might have had in shambles, he dismissed the child stealing and first degree murder indictments against both men. He didn't believe that either of them had anything to do with the disappearance of Melvin Horst. Soon after, he resigned. Years passed. Orville quieted down and went back to the way it had once been. Of course, there was no way to do that for the Horst family. After Christmas 1930, Raymond and Zora finally took down the dried-out Christmas tree they'd been keeping in their living room for the past two years. They continued to hope that Melvin would return one day and find the toys he'd opened just two days before he vanished. By then, the family had already been the target of false sightings, prank telephone calls, and cruel hoaxes. The worst was on December 12, 1929, when someone started a rumor that Melvin was returning home that night. Almost the entire population of Orville rushed to the house that evening to see him, but needless to say, Melvin wasn't there. Zora bravely kept up hope of Melvin's return alive for as long as she could. But in 1938, she admitted to a reporter, quote, I like to think he's still alive, but I'm resigned to the probability that he is not. Ohio Governor John W. Bricker briefly reopened Melvin's case in March 1940, thanks to new information from California, but the investigation led nowhere when the clues turned out to be bogus. In 1953, the horse moved to Florida, where Raymond started his own roofing business. He died there in 1961, never learning the fate of his son. Zora passed away a few years later. 
Ralph and Dora, Melvin's brother and sister, lived out the rest of their lives in Orville and had families of their own. They had only faded memories of the brother who vanished one day. So what happened to Melvin Horse, the little boy everyone seemed to forget to keep looking for? Well, no one knows, or at least no one has ever said. In the 1930s, most believed him to be dead, likely killed in retaliation for Roy Horse's crackdown on illegal liquor in the area. But Cleveland Press crime reporter Bob Larkin proposed another more intriguing theory. Based on information he got from contacts in the criminal underworld, he agreed that Melvin had been kidnapped to get back at Roy Horst, but Larkin was told that Melvin had not been killed. Instead, he'd been given to a family who lived on a farm near Toledo, and eventually he forgot about his real family and even his past identity. He'd only been four years old after all. In time, his short life in Orville was completely forgotten. Well, was this story true, or was it an elaborate version of telling your kids that their old dog was sent to live out the rest of his days on a proverbial farm? Who knows? Bob Larkin tried to follow up on the story, but he got nowhere. Whoever the family with the farm near Toledo was, he was never able to find them. The only thing we can say for sure about the boy who vanished is that Melvin Horst at least with that identity, was never seen again. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Cool. Okay, well, I guess we'll get started. Yeah, all right. Now that all the big business money talk's done. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for returning for more episodes of the American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call... Gaw. That's a better one. Oh, you like that? Yeah, that was better. better. Yeah, so I'm your co-host, Cody Beck. With me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, uh, the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor, with that phenomenal voice you just heard. (laughs) Uh, Hey, how you doing? (sighs) 
Oh, you know, I mean, other than I, under the weather, I yeah, it'll feel so great. And I'm looking yeah. outside at just like uh, that's a great day, gray like, skies. And on. Like a couple of days ago, it was like 85 degrees or something. And this morning, I woke up, I forgot I'd left a window wide open, and yep. it was like. 43 degrees same same thing same thing happened with me dude and i i was like i was like i left the windows open or whatever but i was like i can't i can't if i turn my heat on six hours after i turn my air conditioner Uh on i'm gonna i'm gonna lose my mind i know um but it's midwest you know and it's it's also the middle of april so we really i know what do we expect the 80 thing was a it was a fluke so yeah yeah, i think we're in for some 60s and 70s for a while around here yeah did did you guys uh did you get hit with any of the crazy storms and winds i don't know i uh, everyone kept saying that oh you know it was raining it was hailing that there were tornado watches but I was talking about, you know, H.H. Holmes last night. And so I had no idea what was going on. So when I got when I it wasn't raining when I started and it had stopped raining when it was over. That's all I knew. So, yeah, I was was like so many people kept saying how bad everything was. And I kind of looked outside around here and I was like, "Eh, I mean, it's raining, but I don't know. Must have just kind of missed us somehow so. I, well that's the thing oh, I mean, my phone was going off with like tornado oh, really? warnings oh, yeah. yeah and i was yeah. like i think mine never went off well i mean it was in creve core so like i guess it diff- like i'm still 30 40 yeah. minutes away but i guess but still i don't know oh god okay we got to get off the weather yeah um, i know well, yeah. i know we talk about the weather all day a couple yeah old men sitting around the cracker barrel so <laughs> right <laughs> well yeah uh, well what's going on how the event go last night what, good, what's good, up good yeah no everything is um everything's is hopping for spring it, it just people are um just i think people are unsure about oh, i was just about to say unsure about the weather but we're not talking about weather anymore <laughs> god but, damn it <laughs> uh, but everybody's filling everything keeps filling up it just uh some of it waits till the last minute and some of it doesn't i mean we are already sold out for the coming weekend but um if you guys are in the illinois or missouri or st louis area i keep trying to get everybody to um know that we have a brand new tour that we just started and we're actually going to start another one in june so trying to mix things up a little bit not just the river road tour so then we're going to do a different river road tour with different locations and, and and a different dinner and everything but i'll talk about that later but the new one is that spirits of alton tour that we started a month or so ago um and that's our the dinner is our only dinner tour that stays in town we don't go outside town but it's not like all the same old places that we talk about in the past these mm-hmm. are a lot of new things and we go to places that no other tour can take you because I what I did was it kind of base it a lot on stuff I collected that was new for the new edition of Haunted Alton that came mm-hmm. out last fall. So it's a lot of stories that, that weren't in print before. And so now we're going to we've added them into this tour. And so it is fun. It's fun to get to do something completely different. So we've got lots of spring and summer tours and dinner events and everything coming up. But. Uh, I always tell everybody, hey, you think you've already done all of our Alton tours? You haven't mm-hmm. uh, because we got new stuff. So go to dinnerandspirits.com, check that stuff out. And um, we have uh, a new tour coming up on April 28th uh, at the end of the month. We still have some spots left for that one. Um, everything else in the month, though, sold out. But um, that is coming. So I was hoping uh, you were going to say we had a new <laughs> tour coming out, like the April 20th tour, buddy. And no, it was going to no, be no, like, no, we don't have a we don't have a 420 tour. So I mean, I suppose we could. <laughs> I mean, yeah, why not? People be, be seeing things that, you know, not necessarily go. So anyway, <laughs> um, but talking about things selling out, uh, clocks ticking. Haunted America conference getting closer and closer. So soon. Um, I know it's coming. It's like two months away now. 
it's barely over two months. And, um, you know, we are, we're filling up the after our events are filling up. We still got stuff left, but we're getting a lot closer to like the cutoff for the shirts and things mm-hmm. where we'll have to announce that here in a couple of weeks and they won't be able to get any more except for, you know, take your chance and maybe we'll have your size at the event. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, check out the website, uh, ghostconference.net, uh, new location, new stuff we're offering this year. Cody and I will both be there. Uh, we want to see as many of our listeners as we can. We got people coming from New York, yeah, uh, Seattle, all over. Texas, California, all over the place uh, for this thing. So um, it's June 23rd and 24th. You don't have it marked on your calendar already, but start making your plans, man, because it's uh, it's coming a lot faster than we think. <laughs> it's yeah. really sneaking up on us. So I'm excited. And, and yeah. speaking, no, I am too. Me too. Speaking of the Alton tours and things, I mean, you saying like, you know, we can show you things that other people necessarily can't and things like there's, there's definitely other, you know, ghost tours and stuff around, but I think something people should, you know, take note of or whatever is like um, that Troy, you know, pulls some strings and uses leverages that network and he gets into really cool places and things that aren't on a lot of other tours. Um, and so, yeah, the, while there might be a couple other tours going on in this general area, this one's going to show you some stuff that uh, are these these ones will show you stuff that you're not necessarily going to see everywhere else. And right. you, and you keep updating things and, yeah, you know, with new information, new places, yeah, new tours. So, yeah. um, yeah. So this, yeah, this fun. I mean, that's, that's part of the fun of it, you know, is getting to add new books, new events, new, you know, the dinner things have been a lot of fun. We've had really good turnouts for all of our dinners and including some brand new ones. Cause at the end of the month, I've got one that's brand new, uh, that sold out so fast that we had to add another one in July and then we're going to do another one in the fall because then the book that is kind of connected to this one will be out. Nice. So, in fact, I just got the cover for it today. So oh, I'll be uh, probably posting that sometime soon. So nice. I got to go out of town for a few days, but yes. I will be back. Is yeah, uh, I I can't I can never remember what you've told normal people versus what you told me and others and stuff. Can you say what you're doing for tomorrow yet or not? I can't. Yeah. Okay, I can't, okay. I can't say where I'm going. No uh, I, I'm going out of town and I'm filming some stuff for television. That's all I can say right now. That's what always happens. They're not allowed yeah. to talk about it. So I'll probably post some pictures and uh, we'll not say where they are, but you know, Oh yeah. We're going to tease them. We're going <laughs> to tease might them. Be able to tell. So yeah, anyway, um, let's but, tease yeah. them a little so bit. It should be fun. Awesome. Well, yeah, well, good luck with that. Yeah. Um, I think that'll be, that'll be really cool for you. I can't wait to see it all. Um, okay. So got a listener review here um, on iTunes from Lisha Lou 503. I think okay. that's how you'd pronounce it. Uh, it's just titled awesome. So I started listening to do the uh, two podcasts within the last few years while working and listened to many different ones focused on true crime and supernatural. I'm currently on season three of American hauntings and I love the mix of history, paranormal, true crime. I hope to one day make it to Alton for the haunted America conference. And as a book hoarder, I will be purchasing some of Troy's books. Keep up the great work. Cool. So, yeah. So thank yeah. you so much. And we had a, we had quite a few good reviews actually lately. Um, I just grabbed one that I could actually get the whole screenshot of because iTunes was like not they're oh. just not having it. <laughs> oh, it just right. cuts them off of sometimes. But we've yeah. we've had some pretty nice stuff lately. So yeah. um, I, yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, um, me too. And yeah, thank you so much. Again, iTunes is kind of just unfortunately it's just like where everything happens. Yeah, so it's where just, we, yeah, where it's we pander for leave stuff for people to find it. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just it's you're you're chained to it. No way around it. So. Right. Okay, well let's let's talk about this 
grim, weird story. <laughs> I, I promise you, you know, you thought last week or last episode was fun. And I said, well, yeah, the next one won't be. Yeah, this <laughs> this this one. Now, um, the good news is the next episode, which I teased in yes. this episode. And we'll get um, to that. Will be a lot more fun. OK, Mostly because the subject of our next one is such an asshole. Oh, oh OK. Makes him so awesome. So, well, I was I have a lot of questions to ask about him in yeah. a little bit, but uh, just yeah. to kind of tee it up. But uh, yeah. I think for this one, maybe because uh, you know, we don't have a body and we we only kind of know so much. And then I think also I was like more focused on, wait, is this like a, a story kind of like led by like the little rascals, essentially? <laughs> you, you know, I think that parts of it are, aren't they? Oh, look, yeah. the manure wagon. You know? Yeah, it, like, it oh, OK, <laughs> so I think some of it distracted me from like the yeah. overall arching idea of the like, oh, this kid. This that, child, yeah. yeah. And that, I, it, well, it's OK. Everyone else got distracted. Too exactly. Because they forgot to keep looking for him. Yes. So, and had know, you not called parents seemed to care. So. Had you not called that out, I would I probably would have been like, oh, I would have been like, oh, shit, yeah. I'm I'm actually forgetting yeah, about a him lot too. of moving parts in this episode and a lot of things going on and everybody went a little nuts. So, yeah. Um, so, well, you know, OK, so you, we talked about the Charles Ashmore stuff a little yeah. bit. And at first, so at first I'm like, yeah, oh, this and you is know, what we're getting into. Right. Well, and you know what's fun about the story is I, I love telling this story because um, I used to run across this when I was a kid, you know, and I read all the you know, true unexplained books and everything that I could get from scholastic books and everything. And yeah. I would read that stuff. And this story was in, or one version of it, cause there's a few um, was in all these books mm. and I still find it in books. I mean, I still find it in, you know, actual now printed books. People still think the story is true, you know, or they'll find this story. And, you know, it was written as a short fictional story, but you know, um, he was Ambrose Pierce was obsessed with disappearances, which is, as I said, ironic. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. considering we don't ever know what happened to him, but we'll get to that. So that's that's our next episode. So yeah, um, but yeah, so I thought it was this would just be a, a, a teaser that I could use because it was about a missing boy. Uh, but yeah, I, I just have always loved the story because you can you can see it in your head. Yes, you, you can. Know? With the, 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 the snow the father and the sister are walking through the snow and the footprints just stop. Yeah. You know, that's a that's like a I mean, and that's been in television shows, Twilight Zone, everything. And they all come from this short story that he wrote. But people really honestly, I've got a couple of books on like unexplained disappearances that include this story. Wow. I've heard it on podcasts. I've I've seen it everywhere. And and it's it's not it's not a true story. I mean, yeah. it's in his fiction collections. So so, so this is I essentially I hadn't thought about it too much before, but this is just kind of like another resurrection Mary sort of thing. Like everybody kind of has their own I guess version yeah, of it. Yeah, or well, I think what happened was like a trope or something. After after he wrote his, some other people wrote different versions of the story because there's a little bit more to it and we'll, we'll, i'll actually get into that a little bit in the next episode because the reason he well i the reason he became obsessed i don't want i don't want to spoil you don't it, you don't have to i, I, I won't but I'll, I'll just give you a line um okay. he the reason he became so obsessed with these disappearances is because of something that he investigated as a journalist and so he started writing a lot about these kinds of things and um 
for whatever reason, I think people read his story and then did their own. Cause mm. you, I mean, you could get away with that a little easier. It's not okay. like anybody's going to put it in the computer and go, Oh, look, this story's already been done. <laughs> right. you no, know, it's not, you know? Um, so I think other stories like it appeared and everybody kind of had their own version. So sort mm-hmm. of like that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so yeah, we are going to talk more about, about this man later. So yeah, we'll try not to dive into it too yeah. much. Yeah. Um, but one question I did want to ask you is that I, my first note was just this guy in his writing style sounds fun question mark um and so what i wanted to ask you and i think it's something i have never asked you before on the podcast was i was gonna say um who are who are some of the writers that inspired you and your writing i think it's something i haven't it's a question oh, no, i don't so know I how just i have my you. personality on this guy right okay not, not, not your yeah, writing, not writing style. style so it's, uh, okay. it's not um no it's really more, more just my personality so um yeah, uh, you know, I'm putting you right on the spot, but I was like, how have no, I never yeah, asked I, him this? Really not anything I could think about. But, you know, I mean, I think I've maybe told you before that the reason that I started doing this in the first place is when I was a kid, I discovered books by a guy named Richard Weiner. Maybe I've talked about him before. And um, his books were as an 11, 12 year old, they were fucking amazing. But yeah. then when I got older and I thought I started looking into some of the stories, I'm like, oh, dude, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> okay. yeah, I mean, you know, he only had there. There wasn't the kind of access to things that we have now. I, I always say that to kind of, you know, give everybody from the 70s an excuse, you know, but, sure. but but it's true, though, you know, so he could only present the stories the way they were told to him. And so, but, but I, that way really wasn't, it wasn't the veracity of the stories or anything. It was more of the fact that uh, of what he did and, 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 you know, his, his, you know, just traveling everywhere, writing ghost stories and things. I, I was looking to see, um, hang on. I think I might have one of his books real close by. And if I do, I got to read you his bio. Okay. This is the other thing that intrigued me. Okay. But I, I think I've got one close by here. So Troy's now walking in back to his bookshelf. And when he tells me, I think I have one of his books nearby, I want people to know that I'm looking at approximately one, two, three, four, seven bookshelves. So 200 books. Podcast, no one can see what I'm holding up. But I was giving I was giving com- I was giving colorful but, commentary as yeah, to what was yeah. going so on. So anyway, but in the I hope his bio is in this looks like this might be a reprint. Um, uh Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, so in his bio, it says, you know, Haunted Houses uh, was the name of this book. And and his previous books were about the mysteries of the sea. And he's presently working on several other books. He only did maybe, I don't maybe a half dozen books or something. Um, He is a graduate of the University of Minnesota and spent most of his working life in the news media and photography. And here's where I got excited Mm -hmm. as an 11 year old. He had he's also been a professional sailor, treasure hunter yachtsman hobo and soldier of fortune his you know this is all made up right his collection of vintage automobiles include a pierce arrow several classic packards a bugatti and some early sports racing cars he's most often seen driving around fort lauderdale in his everyday car a red 1964 corvette roadster and i thought okay fuck i gotta i gotta grow up to be this guy (laughs) oh man fuck i'm gonna grow up and be a pirate you know Um, so with a I Corvette. Thought, well, if that's what you can do if you write ghost stories, you get to do all those things. Well, hell, sign uh, me up. That explains a lot. But yeah, yep. <laughs> but no, that but that's probably what got me most intrigued as a kid. And you know, I don't know. I don't sure. 
really know how to do anything else. So here we are. So. <laughs> well, hey, you're figuring it out. But no, I do like how, okay, that guy inspired a lot of your stuff. But then the other guy, yeah, you said uh, just a curmudgeon thing. That was just about the personality. Like, just, <laughs> yeah. I take, yeah. Yeah, take, yeah, like take my personality traits from Ambrose Beers and Mark Twain. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, well, okay. So, okay. I mean, you already went through this. Obviously, people just heard the monologue. Uh, I guess the thing that interests me was, so Bobby and um, Melvin are like wandering around the neighborhood, but like, was it normal for just like four year olds just to kind of like meet up but with yeah, friends I mean, and you know, see you later? Twenties. I mean, why not? Everything was fine. They lived in a small town. Nobody thought anything bad was going to happen. I, oh, no, um, I don't even like the little rascals, kind of, because if there had yeah. just been a handful of other kids, although there probably were at one time because they were playing with other kids and yeah. empty vacant lots and things. I mean, it's it was a little working class town in the late twenties, you know, and. Nobody needed to worry about stuff like that. You know, four and five, seven-year-olds wandering around the streets, they weren't going to go very far. And as I even mentioned, everybody in the neighborhood knew him. You know, they'd see him go by. You know, he was always around. Um, even the even the creepy guy that lived down the street that didn't like his uncle waved at him because yeah. he's just a kid, you know, who, you know, gets accused of kidnapping him and stuff, but which he didn't do. But you know, um, yeah, so that was pretty normal. And, you know, with the streetlights come on, it's time to come home. Uh -huh. And he wasn't home yet. And that's why his mom got worried. And then when his dad came in and when he got home from the factory and he still wasn't around and that that was alarming. You know. Yeah, I think. Well, so thank you for all that context. I think more of what I was wondering is um, <laughs> I'm thinking of myself as a four year old. Like if I got two houses down from mine, I'd probably be lost and be like, I don't um, know where I yeah, live no, now. I, like, um, I don't remember, though. I remember being that age and uh, I remember a neighborhood where we lived for a while um, when I was that age. And I remember going around. I still have a memory of going around the block selling my some of the some of the comic books I didn't want for a dime out of my wagon to people. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I was like four or five years old. I oh, mean, so you, you, know. would, you would sell books for yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I remember being that age and you just, you know, you ran free back and that and I wasn't in the 20s. OK, it was the 30s. Well, still, yeah, OK, OK, OK. Yeah, okay. But clear. Yeah. I mean, so the 20s, it was, you know, it was a different time. It's not like now. I mean, we're not going to let a four year old go outside the house by themselves, let alone go running all over town following manure wagons. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And watching bonfires. That was my other one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, let's, send, let's send toddlers and, and, and little little pre, you know early age elementary school kids to play in a fire. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah, so, everything was. But. Everything was fine. Well, until it wasn't. But, until it you wasn't. Know, you know, normally. <laughs> yes. It's a simpler time, maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the reward eventually uh, gets reaches, you know, 280K in today's money type yeah. stuff. And you mentioned how history is not kind to the prosecutor, uh, Walter J. Maui and Sheriff Albert J. Cott. Uh, you said they brought in John Stevens and Oris Slater's private detectives. And I know we have talked about yeah especially pink. when we did Velisca and stuff you know that those, yeah. those cops were not set up to handle this i mean this is a county sheriff you know i don't even think they had a town policeman i think just county sheriffs mm -hmm. took care of it at the time and this is a county prosecutor who's trying to run an investigation which was a, a, is a little odd it's a little unorthodox but i think that it was something that had to be done at the time because mm -hmm. They just didn't have to do what the you can with what you have. So, or... Yeah. I mean, you know, he's got an uncle who's the town marshal, which is like usually like one guy and an assistant. And that's uh -huh. it. That's the entire police department. So, 
you know, um, there just wasn't a lot for them to work with. And so it's easy to armchair quarterback these guys. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, they did get a bit distracted by just somebody they didn't like. Yes. And, um, you know, any chance they would have had to find this kid, I think, disappeared by the time they wasted several months screwing around with that family. Yeah, so. I'm yeah, I'm sure it's probably hell, even like probably 72 hours. It's kind of like, you know, yeah, they're not going to. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first and, and, again, and, and like I pointed out, too, is they couldn't at that time. You're, you're talking about the 1920s. You're talking about a very rural area mm-hmm. and they couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that you know, this could be anything other than some sort of revenge kidnapping or something, you know, even though there was at that same time, these horrible depraved murders taking of children taking Mm -hmm. place and making headlines around the country, but not in this little town in Ohio. No, 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 no. no. I mean, nobody's thinking that that's a possibility. These are, these are kids disappearing in big cities, you know, big cities are bad places, you know, It, it, to most rural people at the time. Mm-hmm. And so that didn't make any sense to them. It had to be, you know, a ransom, which didn't make sense because the the, the horse didn't have any money mm-hmm. um, or it was, it had to be revenge. And since they couldn't find any enemies from, you know, the kids' families, then it, it well had to be his uncle because Roy was the only one who'd really rubbed anybody the wrong way. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if I think if, if, oh, geez. Okay. So, I mean, it's yeah. solid thinking. It it is. It that's is the only thing they could consider. It is. And I mean, so it, that's where they dropped the ball, right? And I mean, because I would think, uh, you know, back then, I'm sure if I told them, like, yeah, some people actually like kidnap kids and just eat them for no reason, yeah. they'd, they'd yeah, probably exactly. be like, "What are you talking about?" But I yeah. would have, I probably also would have been like, you know, prohibition. Whose wallet's going to get light? Sure. Who can we try to take sure. revenge on or whatever? Yeah. And yeah. Um, but then. If I, I don't know, I feel like if that was the thing, maybe they probably would have at least said something like, hey, we got your well, kid. We did this. Yeah. Don't do it again. Or Yeah, I don't you would know. think. Um, but, you know, if it was only I suppose the the way of thinking was that if it was only to kind of throw him off his game, mm-hmm. but surely someone would should have said, hey, listen, you know, we'll let this kid go. But you got to stop arresting everybody. That would have made sense. Ex- absolutely. They got fixated on that, the Arnold family, and they couldn't let it go. And that I mean, don't get me wrong. These people were. <laughs> they sound like a great mess. bunch. Yeah. I mean, they were a mess anyway, and they were always up to something, but they didn't do this. You mm-hmm. know, I don't think any of them, I don't even think it would have crossed their minds to kidnap a little kid from down the street. I really don't. I mean, yeah. these people seem like bums, but I still don't think that's it. Yeah. And then, you know, then the other thing, and doesn't, doesn't a little junior, this little creep that mm-hmm. lies about it, doesn't he remind you that kid that, um, that took the place of Walter Collins in that episode. That oh yeah. Yeah. Where he just, you know, he wanted a free trip to Hollywood to meet movie yeah. stars. So he pretends to be this kid <laughs> and then lies and lies and lies about it. That's exactly what this kid is. Yes. Yep. So, that's I a mean, very good point. Nonstop. It's a good and parallel. Everybody ate it up. I, that's what I couldn't understand. This kid, why in the world are you listening to what this kid has to say? Yes, man? It, children, it I don't sense. like children. I'm telling yeah. you. Yeah. And again, it keeps so changing sense. the story. And so like, it's almost like they're like trying to fit the narrative around what this kid's yeah. saying at Whatever this time. Whatever he came up with, that must be it. Yeah. Oh, no, I saw uh, there was an orange. We found an orange <laughs> in the driveway. Oh, yeah. A whiskey bottle. He, yeah. he handed out an orange. He gave it to the, gave it the guy that kidnapped you. And I'm thinking... How are you? Why are you believing this? I don't understand. And yeah, and no one was asking questions. I think they just wanted it to get solved. But 
that didn't bring it any closer to finding that poor kid. Right. I don't know, man. It's a, this is a no, story. Well, at first, <laughs> when you started getting into the orange and whiskey thing or something, I'm thinking I'm already, I'm like, okay, so they, what did they lace the orange with boot? No, no, nothing yeah, like nope, that. No, nope, 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 just nope. the orange. And, yeah. you know, and a reporter was like, um, yeah, that was, I saw that. It, no, I wasn't even there when it happened. It was showed up a week later and nobody listened to the guy. The only time they finally started listening to the reporter was when he went, when they, you know, could get him out of jail, get those guys out of jail because he comes back and goes, okay, w- look at, listen, there's no way this kid could have seen any of these things. Yeah. Finally, somebody listened. God. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's like you said, like the Arnolds, you know, don't sound like great people, but and nobody needs to be locked up for no, shit they didn't do. So I'm that. glad somebody was like, Come well, on. that that and I'm sure that their defense attorneys were not exactly super helpful either. So, I mean, yeah. I'm sure they were good guys because like, you know, Mets is the one who finally got him an appeal. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he was a bankruptcy attorney and his buddy who was helping was a tax attorney. Yeah. Who never who'd never tried any um, criminal. Yeah. Yeah, criminal stuff yeah i'm thinking man i don't know how they ended up with those well guys. it seems like i, really a, don't. I haven't it, been able to find that i, I think was it's curious. like a ragtag uh bad news bears type um like <laughs> yeah well, uh, yeah whatever they can well, eventually get. they got out i guess but god yes you know. so um so okay so just to clarify though so this confession in february 1930 um that's all that's all bullshit or, or yeah something, that, well right or, yeah because that was um that was the junior mm-hmm. now when he got caught lying about everything else then he started saying oh well you know the only reason i'm lying is because my dad really you drop a dime thought, on your dad yeah you know why don't you just say your dad's the killed the black dahlia too yeah. um, oh that's a i'm on sidetrack there um, but, <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. so he's almost my dad and our neighbor you know and then it's like I would beat my kid. Oh, hell yeah. 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 And so then, well, you know, well, you know, we've already talked about this how many times about, you know, um, the way they got confessions back in the 20s and 30s. beat the shit out of you until you decided to confess. And so then they they kept confessing and then they blamed everything on the other one and it went back and forth and back and forth and they kept coming up with new things. And then finally the, the prosecutor was like, okay, yeah, these guys didn't do anything either. So they just wiped the whole thing out and that was it. I mean, the end of the story, nobody confessed, nobody got caught. You know, and and they forgot about the kid pretty yeah, much. And they like, just for, sort of forgot about the kid once again, just like the Bobby Dunbar story. Yeah. What about poor Bobby? Did anybody remember that we were supposed to be looking for him? Yeah. Oh, nope, forgot all about it. He's gone now. He's either dead or just disappeared somewhere. So what do you think about like some of these uh, like police officers or politicians or people involved in this stuff? Like each time they go down a new avenue, no matter how ridiculous, do you think they actually think like fuck, we finally got it. Or do you think they just like want an answer and just so it will kind of like cloud their judgment to be so like cognitively biased that they just will accept anything? What's going on there? Yeah, I don't know. I think that you've got a mixture of things. I really think it depends on the situation. I, I think that a lot of times people want something to be solved so badly that if a confession or some kind of clue comes along that seems like that might be the answer, people run with it, man. Yeah. I mean, I've studied so many stories over the years of 
you know, like uh, detectives who just refuse to give up on an idea, someone that they were convinced that were guilty. And you know what? Down the road, they might have been right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've run into that a lot. You know, I, I think, you know, I've done a lot with the, the those grime, the Grime Sisters story yeah, yeah, yeah. from Chicago. And there was one of the detectives involved in that who actually went back to work for the, the sheriff's department after he got fired because well, he got fired by one department and went to work pro bono for another because he was so convinced that he knew who done it, you know. And so I think that in some cases, that's what it is. I think in other cases, uh, people are just covering their ass, uh, you know, yeah. I think because running for reelection or mm-hmm. whatever. And if it looks like that, that got away from them, let's say you're a prosecutor and you're running for reelection. And it looks like, you know, a case like this one that got tons and tons of press and everybody was looking for an answer and you finally have one, you railroad that Arnold family who are scumbags that nobody likes anyway. So you figure, Hey, what's the harm? Even if they're not guilty of this, I'm sure they're guilty of something else. Sure. And I've heard that a million times over the years too. That's the same kind of stuff you always hear. And I'm not saying that's exactly what happened in this case. I mean, cause eventually that this prosecutor just said, I'm done and resigned. You know, I mean, I think he just had reached his limit, but so I don't know, man, I can't, that's not something I can just give you a definitive answer on. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, well, I like to ask you kind of semi-loaded, difficult questions. So uh, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> uh, that's it's, this is like a little bit off, but um, I just rewatched um, Peacemaker on HBO max um, with John Cena oh, yeah, yeah. and yeah, that, I that superhero thing. I didn't, I didn't watch that one. I, so I didn't care about Peacemaker so much. Didn't really yeah, care I about John either. Cena. That's why I never watched it. But I tell you, I watched it through twice now, but I, and I love oh, it so much. But one of my fun. favorite things, is um when you were talking about you know i'm sure they're guilty of something one of his things that he says he's he says i cherish peace with all my heart i don't care how many men women and children i have to kill to get kill it to get it yeah oh yeah no that's <laughs> Let's a, love that's, that line that's, that is about the same thing though in, in in so many cases but yeah i've heard i've heard um you know i've or have read i i'm not gonna it's not like i walk around and i'm in the middle of police investigations and got with your little notebook and go, no no I'm stu- i mean you know i've read about studied about researched enough that that's that's something that it used to be i don't know if it's as much anymore now that we've got things like the innocence project and things uh-huh. but at one time that was something they just figured well you know what if they didn't do this they did this so you know as long mm-hmm. as they're going to jail i don't yeah. care then i don't and, look know, like an some, asshole in some ways in in some cases that kind of thing i mean you know they got david berkowitz on um because he parking tickets yeah yeah, right? yeah. so yeah. You know, whatever it takes sometimes to at least get them where you need them to be. I, I can I can go with that. I think, where do you uh, draw but, you the know, line? You don't want to lock guess. somebody up for life or send them to the chair because for something they didn't do, even though they might have done something bad one time. I mean, right. come on, you know. Yeah. But so there's a limit there as to, I think, what you can. And, and well, OK, let me back that up and say <laughs> you can't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. See, I still think this is like the 1940s, you know, so. <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I bring out the phone book and the rubber hose. Let's see what this guy's got to say, you know, right. uh, but um, oh, so, we get to interrogate somebody to smoke cigarettes uh, the whole time. It'd be, it'd be great. And put it, you know, with the light, you know, shining that yeah. light on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's just like in those old movies. <laughs> oh, man. But uh, I think the worst thing about this and, and you I may have jumped ahead of you there, but I think um, the worst thing about this is this poor family. 
you know, who were the pranks and shit so and, all that. and people calling them and, you know, pranking oh. them like the, the, the Christmas thing that or right around Christmas mm-hmm. a year later. And everybody was like, Oh, he's coming home. And everybody shows up because they're excited for him. They didn't know they weren't the ones who did the prank. They showed up because they, you know, wanted to celebrate with the family only, to find the whole thing had been made up. You yeah. Know, that's awful. And then they kept the Christmas tree up for the same tree that was up when Melvin was there. They kept it up for another year. Yeah. Over a year because they wanted him to come home. And well, 1930, actually. So for two Christmases, mm-hmm. they kept the same tree up. And those were not artificial trees. Uh-huh. So you so, got to imagine by the time they took that down, it looked like it a Charlie Brown one. Brown stick. <laughs> And a pile of needles. Oh, it's, floor, not you know? it's not but, funny. It's not funny. I know, but that's, it's sad. I mean, it's, it's really yeah, sad that they didn't. They wanted Melvin to come home and find the toys he'd unwrapped underneath the tree. So yeah. imagine being those other two kids. Uh, you know, right. You know, and who were pretty young. You know, um, the little girl probably, I doubt she even remembered him mm-hmm. because she was like two. But his older brother, I'm sure, did. But, you know, and they lived the rest of their life there in town. Mm-hmm. And, oh. you know, never really talked about it much or, you know, it was just one of those things that. Well, I'm sure it's like the with the little girl, probably she just grew up. And it's like, I can't tell you why I don't exactly remember. It's just my family's always been like really sad and stuff. Yeah. Just kind of Christmas weird around here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, that's so heartbreaking about, you know, wanting to come home to his toys and stuff. And so that makes it where like when people do the pranks and stuff like that, that makes yeah, that makes me, worse, that makes me want to be like, can I be a Batman at this point know, and right? just go like, fuck those people up? Because yeah. Just that's gosh. Well, I like to think the story that the crime reporter found was true, though. If nothing else, if he couldn't come home, if he wasn't going to come home, that at least he (laughs) went to live on a farm. Yes. Upstate. Upstate. Yeah. It sounds so awful. I was I was talking last night about and that came up several times in the HH home story where he kept telling the family that, you know, the kid had gone to live on a farm. And I'm like, man like your dog you yeah, know like exactly. the old dog you know exactly it's just, god it's so awful but you know i so if if that's what happened at least that's better than that's better than nothing because everybody but his family forgot about him yeah you know they just did it just once he was out of the headlines once he was out in the newspaper um he became the next bobby dunbar you yeah know? The kid nobody looked for. Yeah, it's kind of like I feel like people would be really like demanding like rage and things like that. Be like, wait, what are we even yelling about anymore? Yeah, at this exactly. point? You know, yeah, like, same thing. It, well, it's, it's like those things where I tell you where I would it did those events at Six Flags and people would stand in line for an hour to get in. And then when they get up to the door, they go, now, what are we in line for? Oh, same gosh. kind of thing. Yep. Um, what, what are we here for? What are we protesting? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Wait, do we, wait, are we do we like yeah. this? Do we not like this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Am I might for this. Am I for cancer or against it? I don't remember. So. It's like they have a sign where they can flip it one way or another, depending <laughs> right, on like right, which right. mood they're in. Um, well, yeah, that was going to be the last thing I said was cool. uh, that was Bob Larkin uh, proposing yeah. that theory. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, well, since we don't know, everybody else has been making stuff up. Let's just that's what happened. Let's just yeah, say let's that. Let's just say that's what happened. So. And he lived. You know, it's funny life. that, you know, the Bob Larkin thing just kind of made me think. And you were asking me, I just popped in my head when I saw his name on there. 
Um, you were asking me what inspired me to do this stuff. And, you know, I always talk about, you know, 1920s and 30s, you know, cops and all this stuff. But, you know, I don't I wouldn't have wanted to be a detective. I'd want to be one of these reporters. I can see that, that, yeah. that run around and get into the middle of the crime scene mm-hmm. and go around questioning people and pretending to be a cop. And yes, I that I, I could have gotten behind that, I think. Back I can absolutely see when, that, you know, when the, the, the police department had to deal with all the newspapers in town. And every time you hear about, you know, like the black Dahlia case or whatever, there's always reporters there mm-hmm. taking pictures or asking questions or stealing you know evidence and <laughs> evidence, over yeah. to the cops in, in exchange for an exclusive that would have been a blast i sure. that would have been a great job i could like, see you totally like doing that with all those photographs that guy um that photographer you've probably seen a lot of the photos that don't even know who he is but he was this crazy photographer from New York who took like the most gruesome pictures imaginable. Ugh. Like if there was a car wreck or a shootout or somebody jumped off a building, that dude would always be there taking pictures. I got a whole big book of his photos. And um, yeah, I could see, I could see. That. <laughs> so how many, how many of those um, accidents yeah. and things did he cause himself? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, like Jake Gyllenhaal, like Nightcrawler oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah, um, same thing. Yeah. Oh. Uh, no, I could definitely see you just like, Kind of gum shooting it up, running up with your oh, little yeah, uh, slam, uh, sitting there slamming on the keys of my typewriter, yes. writing up my stories. You know, yes. hold the press, hold the press. I got a front page story. So. Yes, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I think we kind of talked that one yeah. all the way through. Yeah, um, this is a good one. So, yeah, this is this. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, I mean, it's it's, it's grim, and yeah, next week yeah. will be a little bit lighter. Well, but actually, we got a couple that are. One one the next one is going to be lighter, and the one after that maybe isn't lighter, but it's kind of one of those stories where you kind of go, "Hey, he got what he wanted." Okay, okay. So yeah, and not everything is is you know blood and guts. Yet. Oh well, I mean we'll have some. Don't worry. Well, I feel like when you just said that phrase, maybe I'm just like pessimistic sometimes. But when you said he got what he wanted, I was like, wait, is this a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, like, I, I don't we'll even see. know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to give a couple of shout outs to our yeah. new subscribers on Patreon. So thank you so much for um, su- supporting the show to Vincent, Mandy, and Allison. Uh, you can check that out at uh, uh, Patreon.com/slash yeah, Hauntings. I, I should plug though, take a chance to plug our other podcast um, because you know yeah, I, other- I did it at the beginning of the show, but we do have another podcast dead men do tell tales and it is available now there are two full seasons available up on our patreon page and on may the 9th the first episode of our new season is going to start and cody still doesn't know what it's going to be about so I don't i still haven't told him i'm waiting to spring it on him but i've even found some music and everything so really i, I haven't been doing your job for you so i'm just <laughs> trying to help you so, I, because i, I, I know it. that i I torture you with that. But anyway, uh, um, so, yeah, because I should mention also, if you haven't listened to that or uh, that other podcast, it, it's it's just strictly storytelling, but not. Um, I also mm-hmm. when I started it, I made Cody um, put in all the sound effects that I mm-hmm. asked for, and he does a very good job with finding them. Well, thank and you. so it is more of a um, it's like an audio drama. Almost, yeah, it's a little more dramatized. Do. I do yeah. voices and which are horrible, but no, I do amazing. voices and all kinds of stuff. So um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we really I really enjoy it. I don't think Cody does, but I really enjoy it. And the point is, is that you could have a new show from us every single week. Because if you're listening to the Patreon show and this one, so then you don't have to wait two weeks to get another episode. Mm-hmm. So as Cody said, go to uh, patreon.com slash American hauntings and get ready for the new season coming up in just a couple of weeks. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody that signs up too, by the way, I know we always plug the shows, but everybody that signs up, eventually they oh, yeah, start, get, they start getting too. little right, fun right, things right. Yeah, and t-shirts and knickknacks and all that. Yeah, and you get advanced sales on everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody that does it um, always gets books first, magazines first, gets admission to the conference and debt a winner and all kinds of stuff that Patreon people get all that first before anybody else does. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes that's beneficial because some of the stuff really sells out fast. That's so, very true. Anyway, yeah. So yeah. Oh, and so go ahead. I'm sorry. I just yeah. want to jump in there. Right no, now. no, you're good. And so I think that's the last thing I'll say with the Patreon stuff about me enjoying the show. It's just it's so hard for me because I I know how it ends. I know how to get spoiled. Like, so I'm like, do I want to go back and listen to this whole thing I just did and yeah. actually focus on it? Or am I just gonna nitpick the little things I well, wish I, I, I always I always end up listening to them? I don't really want to listen to myself. I I I enjoy the special effects the sound effects. Uh, okay yeah. so i like to listen to see how they turned out because i never know i just go okay i need and sometimes i'll give you stuff that's like okay so Bizarre. i need the a car people talking uh buses uh the wind blowing mm-hmm. birds singing and I, i'll have like a list of 10 things and i said and i need all these to go at the same time and i need them to go as all through all of this text right yeah now. So, but you do it. So but it I'm, I'm, I appreciate I love, it, man. I really do. I like doing it a lot. And I really love trying to figure out what, what, what's a good special effect for here. Yeah. I, that, I know I end up using a lot of them over and over again. I appreciate that. We always you, end up in courtrooms. I don't know why, but yeah. so there's a lot of, lot of judges banging gavels, but other than that, we have a lot of different sound effects. So. Yeah. The gavel's great. That was one of the first, <laughs> yeah, what's a, one of my go-tos. <laughs> Wood, uh, footsteps on a wooden floor. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's every story. So. Got it. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of the Cobb, you can email us at American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. This message, Troy, the subject line was background music. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, son of oh, a great. bitch. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was, I shouldn't have made an assumption. Um, the, the message is actually, hello. I was just listening to the little Charlie Ross episode and I love the background music. Do you have a playlist or something for the background music that I could listen to? Oh, Much love. Oh. And that's from Leo. Oh. And I was now like, just pick up. Royalty free stuff. Yeah, free stuff. So it's not really. I have like some playlists of my own and things saved and all that. So I was I was thinking at some point maybe I might pull together a like season seven music sure. thing or something. But um, Leo, I can also just email you a couple things if you want. Um, while I kind of work that out, but just and I would do that just because I'm so happy. This is the first time I've ever gotten a message like this where people were complaining about it. So the fact <laughs> no. that you like it, hell yeah, yeah send, we're glad. I'll send yeah. you whatever. Well, I've got an entire playlist already for the patreon show the new no, one. Sh- no yeah. shit I'm, I'm really okay. oh, you really do one. okay i am I, I really do that's so, awesome i mean not all of it will be able to use but there's yeah. enough of it so okay beautiful yeah. beautiful and um yeah and, and also for the people who don't like the background music so much i, I get it i try i try to balance it we out need something back there you can't we I, tried yeah. that too remember I've, we yeah. tried to do stuff without anything in the background and it doesn't sound right yeah it's missing something it sounds yeah, empty it or so. yeah not complete but um, yeah. I do apologize if I, mean, I people, ever get yeah, things too I mean, loud. Watch a but, movie, watch a TV show. There's music the whole time. And you, you won't even it. really notice. You don't yeah. even know it's there so, if, unless it becomes, unless it's really super fitting or it just becomes annoying. Right. Then you, of course, always notice it. So, yeah, so. I guess maybe, maybe yeah, if people that might are, be the problem. if people are <laughs> noticing it, then it probably yeah. means I'm not mixing yeah. it perfectly yeah, we're, enough. We're, we're, we're doing something wrong. Yeah, Turn so, it down or something. But so. contrary to not even popular 
uh, belief. Contrary to what Troy and I say, we do take people's feedback into consideration. Yeah, we, do. Um, yeah, we do. Sometimes we just when immediately dismiss it. Yeah. yeah. But we always yeah, take it into consideration useful. for a second. Right. So. Uh, okay, man. Well, I didn't think this episode would go on this long because I oh, feel like well, it's, it's but, us yammering. So yeah. we'll talk, well, I'm good at so yammering. So let's, all right. Oh well, let yeah, let's wrap it up. Um, just one last reminder though. Um, if you are on AmericanHauntings.net or AmericanHauntingsInc.com, same page. Um, if you're on there and you're looking for anything, books, tours, events, whatever, use the discount code podcast. That's all it has to say, and you get a discount off anything you purchase from us. Uh, same with the uh, Cody shirt store too. American Hauntings clothing. Uh, use the same code there too. You can find the link of it or link to it at the top of my, the main website or it's uh, American Hauntings clothing, right? Yeah, clothing.com. Yeah. Yep. So it's easy to find and you can use the podcast code there. You get 10% off everything you order. So it's, you know, like making money by so listening. Hand to over show. fist. So anyway, that's it for me. So let's, uh, I guess we can, close it out let's wrap it up all right this episode of the american hauntings podcast is written by troy taylor and it was produced and edited by me cody beck if you enjoyed the show leave us a review on itunes tell your friends neighbors random people on the street about it follow us on itunes spotify stitcher or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast to find the website americanhauntingspodcast.com for more info about the show notes oh, photos links crap. And- i gotta send you some photos for this episode. I will do that oh, as soon yeah. as we're finished here. I yeah. forgot. So I've, oh, I'll get been, on it. And I've been building the podcast episode pages by themselves on the site and then putting the pages. Oh, cool. I'm uh, putting the photos on there. I don't know if I've had to launch any of them yet because we just have like the player for the recent ones. But now that we're at seven. Yeah, you should be able to start seeing more of those photos. Yeah. And I've been, I tossed a couple on Instagram and things too. But Oh, good, good. Um, yeah. So we've been trying to, that was something that people ask us for mm-hmm. in the past. So for each episode, we are, are pulling together some things so you can at least see who some of these people look yeah, like yeah. at least the ones we can find photos for so. yeah it's something people have been asking us for for yeah. a long time and then we lied and said we would do it but now we're actually doing <laughs> we it. never did and now yeah. we finally are now we actually are <laughs> uh so yeah find us on facebook twitter instagram tiktok anywhere yeah. else you waste yeah, hours i haven't used that day. much lately then tiktok i thought you were I, I well i was but then i i don't know i just got busy and mm-hmm. I, I keep forgetting about it but the fad like more and, and instagram though yeah 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 uh, yeah so we, yeah whatever you're supposed to be working and studying uh just listen to us instead we promise that we're much more entertaining <laughs> you don't need to graduate no that's it's overrated it's overrated don't yeah. go to college <laughs> true crime is forever i don't know um thanks for listening we couldn't Brian definitely wouldn't pay oh, sorry. <laughs> that's what just terrible criminals say but it right? does though that's the thing right so. yeah yeah You're not good at it yeah. <laughs> um until next time goodbye. oh yeah so long bye oh later. man we really messed this one up so yeah. see you later yeah who cares <laughs> yeah everything's made up the points don't matter or